This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley, and we begin with breaking news from the U.S. state of Wisconsin. Five people have lost their lives and more than 40 have been injured after a vehicle drove into a Christmas parade in Wakusha on Sunday. Authorities say it appears the driver may have been fleeing from another incident. Natasha Chen has more, but we must warn you, these images are disturbing. A Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, turned deadly after an SUV plowed into the crowd Sunday afternoon. There's a car going westbound, pushing the freight on a red on escape. Watch from another angle as the red vehicle speeds down the street, barely missing a child wearing a pink coat. There were a lot of screams, and we almost thought maybe it was Santa, but it was a red SUV, and it hit a lot of people. This disturbing video shows the incident from above and the chaos after the car sped into the parade route, mowing down performers and onlookers. I saw, I mean, 83 people right in front of me um, get hit. I saw people right away run to the people that were hit and start doing CPR. And and I saw people on the ground. There's blood. It was really bad. Angela O'Boyle tells me she just started watching the parade when she filmed this video from her apartment balcony. The next thing I heard were screams and turned my head and saw the car come and plow into the band that was just past my balcony at that point. It hit at least two people right away, rolled over both of them, and then continued down the road. In the city's live stream, you can see a marching band playing. The red SUV then barrels down the street. Moments later, the video shows a police officer chasing after the vehicle. We have multiple casualties. We're going to have 10 to 15 people down in the street. According to the city of Waukesha, at least five people are dead and over 40 injured. The vehicle struck more than 20 individuals. Some of the individuals were children and there were some fatalities as a result of this incident. At least 28 of those hurt were treated at local area hospitals. We do not have any specifics on the on the injuries at, at this time. Um, all of the patients were transported. Authorities are investigating the event this morning. We're no longer looking for a suspect vehicle. We do have a person of interest in custody at the moment, but this is still a very fluid investigation. The FBI is aware of the incident and President Joe Biden has been briefed on the situation. Meanwhile, in Waukesha, the community is stunned and shaken by how the celebration turned into a tragedy. I'm deeply saddened to know that so many in our community went to a parade but ended up dealing with injury and heartache. Natasha Chen reporting there. And CNN's John Berman spoke with a witness who was at the parade to campaign for a local political office. I was initially marching the parade with the Waukesha County Democrats and my family and I and my campaign manager, we had just finished the route and we decided that we wanted to circle back to Main Street to watch the rest of the parade, watch the rest of the performers, dancers, musicians, and then grab some food and enjoy the evening. And as we were heading back towards Main Street, that's when I saw the SUV just zooming down along the parade route and then all of a sudden heard this loud bang and immediately deafening cries and screams from people at the area people at the parade and it was absolutely chaotic it was horrifying there was a lot of uncertainty a lot of unknown nobody knew if this was an attack or if this was an accident or if it was a deliberate 
attack on the people at the parade. And people just start fleeing, running away from the scene, leaving behind their belongings, grabbing their children, calling, screaming, looking for their loved ones. And when the crowd cleared out, that's when it looked like I saw people who appeared to be lying in the middle of the street, lying still, lying lifeless. And quickly, first responders came in, police ambulances came in and secured the area. And we'll bring you all the latest developments on this tragic story the moment we get them. For now, we'll bring it back to business. And the U.S. majors on track for solid gains today in this holiday-shortened trading week. The S&P and the Nasdaq could hit fresh records. All this amid breaking news reports suggesting President Biden will renominate Fed Jay Powell for a second term. We will discuss this and potential implications, whether or not, later on in the show. For now, in Europe, the fourth wave of pandemic sees Austria begin a fresh lockdown today. Germany may not be far behind with Chancellor Chancellor Angela Merkel now saying the current COVID crisis is the worst the country has seen so far and hospitals could soon be overwhelmed. We'll have the latest on, on the lockdowns in just a few moments' time too. Investors in Europe, in the meantime, cautious in the face of these new COVID uncertainties. And despite some positive merger mania, Telecom Italia shares are up some 27%. U.S. buyout firm KKR announcing a $12 billion bid to take the firm private. Will Italy's biggest phone company say Cetto or Nonsimodo? My best friend Lucia in Italy will be crying over that pronunciation, but she did do her best to try and help me in Asia. Well-known Chinese tech names JD.com and NetEase rallied on word that they will be included in the Hang Seng Index next month. More tech sightings on the Hang Seng, but a disquieting sports sighting in China. And that is where we begin the drivers today once again. More questions than answers. The Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, says it's still concerned about Pong Shui's well-being, even after Sunday's video call between the head of the International Olympic Committee and the tennis star. The IOC says Pong insisted she was safe and well, as Will Ripley reports. Olympics organizers trying to calm the controversy over Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. Less than three months before the Beijing Winter Games, the International Olympic Committee releasing a statement appearing to support the Chinese government narrative that the three-time Olympian is doing just fine, despite growing concern for her freedom. A 30-minute video call. Peng, IOC President Tomas Bach, and two other officials, CNN not allowed to see the video. An IOC statement summarizing the call with Peng, saying she is safe and well, living at her home in Beijing, but would like to have her privacy respected at this time. No mention of Peng's explosive allegations three weeks ago that one of China's most senior communist leaders sexually assaulted her, claims quickly scrubbed from Chinese social media. The IOC seems to be so meek, taking an incredibly meek, and frankly, pathetic path to dealing with China when, of course, the IOC holds this great gift. It's the Olympic Games, and they have power. There is leverage in the IOC. That leverage apparently being used to bolster the Communist Party line. China under growing pressure from the White House, the United Nations, international tennis stars. Beijing seeking to quickly turn the page. State media releasing these videos of Peng over the weekend, out and about in Beijing at a youth tennis tournament at a famous Sichuan restaurant, where the conversation just happens to mention the date, November 21st, repeatedly. 
CNN has no way to verify the videos. We can't confirm when they were taken. These videos shared on Twitter, a platform blocked inside China. Chinese state media eagerly tweeting updates and images of Peng, totally ignoring the story in their own country. Unlike the IOC, the Women's Tennis Association taking a much harder stance, demanding direct communication with Peng, unmonitored, uncensored. This WTA statement to CNN says, This video does not change our call for a full, fair, and transparent investigation without censorship. The WTA prepared to pull its billion-dollar business out of China. When the history books look back at this time, they will say, The WTA, what an incredible masterclass in humanitarian leadership, the right way to do it, to call China on its abuses, and the International Olympic Committee sitting there, as they always do, basically doing nothing. Which makes some say the IOC is complicit in the apparent silencing of a tennis icon who dared to speak out against a Chinese leader. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. And Alex Thomas from World Sport joins us with more. Alex, great to have you with us. Um, some real pushback, I think, on the IOC, the Olympic Committee's comments here. They have the most leverage as we head into the Winter Olympics, but of course more to lose by intervening. What do we make of what they've said here? And obviously still the concerns from, um, from the WTA. Look, the main thing is that certainly not from the video that's released on Twitter, as Will Ripley said, you can't verify when that was made. But whatever else you have to say about the IOC, the fact that they've confirmed their president, Thomas Buck, did have a video call with Pung on Sunday reassures us that she is alive, safe and well, silencing the most extreme of our concerns about what might have happened to her after those allegations of sexual assault against a leading Chinese political figure in Zhang Gao Li. Um, so that's one thing. The IOC are also between a rock and a hard place in that they've got to have a successful Winter Olympic Games go ahead in early February. But as Christine Brennan pointed out in Will's report there, they've got very strong contractual obligations for host countries and cities to abide by Olympic charters, which speak very grandly about respecting all athletes and looking after them. And although tennis is a summer Olympic sport, not a winter one, Pung has competed in previous Olympic Games before. And, you know, as Will's report pointed out, she's got serious allegations that have not only not been investigated, but not even referred to by the Chinese government. So I think the WTA is clearly right to carry on pressing the case and the IOC should hang its head in shame, rather, at uh, their cowardly stance. Yeah, Alex, um, I couldn't agree more with you. And the fact that we're discussing the fact that she's alive and, and in good health, but... Is she being coerced? And what of those allegations? Because we need to hear more and we need the truth. Alex Thomas, thank you so much for that. Let's move on. Restriction rebellion. Large protests across Europe over a new COVID crackdown. Police clashed with demonstrators in Belgium where the government is mandating the use of masks and COVID passes. Meanwhile, in Austria, a nationwide lockdown has just gone into effect, forcing restaurants, cafes and non-essential shops to close for up to 20 days. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz is in Vienna with more. Talk us through the protests, Salma, first of all, that we saw this weekend. 
Absolutely, Julia. But let me just start by telling you where I am because I'm at Austria's largest vaccination center. And you can see behind me that line there. We've just been speaking to the doctors and nurses that run this facility. And they say the restrictions here are working because they're forcing people who previously refused to get their vaccine to come out and get that first shot. I was asking one of the doctors, just give me an idea of the numbers. She said we're seeing 10 times as many people as we saw just a couple of of weeks ago. And that's because Austria is trying a very bold experiment. It wants to be the first country in all of Europe to mandate, require everyone who is eligible to get vaccinated. And the deadline is February 1st. And that's not all. They are also trying restrictions that specifically target the unvaccinated. Yes, we're in a nationwide lockdown here now. But just last week, the authorities had a lockdown specifically for the unvaccinated. And even when this lockdown lifts, which is expected to lift in maybe about 20 days time, it will remain in place for those who are not immunized. And the message here is clear. Austria's chancellor says there is a surge in coronavirus cases, and he blames those who have yet to be vaccinated. About one in three Austrians are yet to be immunized. So there's still a really big population here that needs convincing. But of course, when the chancellor announced these measures on Friday, there was big reaction on the streets of Vienna on Saturday. I know we have those pictures to show you. The police told us 40 thousand people came out against lockdown measures, against the vaccine mandate, accusing the government of curbing their civil liberties. Uh, It was largely peaceful, Julia, but there were some arrests, some scuffles uh, later in the night. But there is a human toll here, and that's the chancellor's point. We understand, uh, according to the health minister, that some ICU wards are reaching capacity. The health system is on the brink. Again, the medical community here says this lockdown is necessary. They are pleading with anyone who's not vaccinated to come out and get their shots. For those who are eligible to get the booster shot to do so, again, that doctor who's running this center told me she is so overjoyed to finally see people who hadn't been convinced to get that shot coming out and getting immunized, Julia. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Salma. I asked you about the protest, but you are in exactly the right place talking about exactly the right thing. If indeed this is precipitating greater amounts of people to get vaccines, then that's the right way to go. And the government's having a point. Salma Abdelaziz there in Vienna. Thank you. Okay, sources tell CNN that President Biden will renominate Jerome Powell as chairman of the Federal Reserve. We'll have more on this with Greg Valliere in just a few moments' time. But let me just give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. market futures, if we can see them, because they have accelerated in the positive direction. You can see the Nasdaq futures up some 1%, around a half a percent for the Dow and the S&P on that news, taking out some of the uncertainty that's been hanging over the markets and uh, Consistency, I think, is what uh, the market says it likes at this moment. So Jay Powell will continue for a second term as the head of the Federal Reserve, according to sources. Okay, let's move on for now. Shares in Italy's largest phone group surging after U.S. private equity firm KKR made a bid to take it private. KKR offered to pay $12 billion and to take on Telecom Italia's $33 billion worth of debt. Among those with the power to squelch the deal, though, are stakeholder Vivendi and the Italian government. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. You know, I don't remember a time when Telecom Italia wasn't struggling, quite frankly, or in trouble. And part of that was balancing the competing interests of the Italian government, who has a stake, Vivendi, as who I mentioned there, also who has a stake. And you've got to balance jobs, 
those competing interests with the desire, I think, to cut costs and boost efficiency. KKR think they can do it. At what price, Anna? Well, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? They're putting a bid up, a friendly bid, they're saying, with a premium of 45% on the closing price at the end of last week, which is fairly extraordinary, particularly if you consider, as you say, Telecom Italia's checkered history, particularly when it comes to boardroom battles, but also its very lacklustre present performance. It has had just this year not one but two profit warnings. Its share price has lost nearly two-thirds of value over the last five years. Uh, it's got this enormous debt pile, as you said, 33 billion dollars and its current CEO is reportedly on the chopping block amidst big opposition from the bigger shareholder Vivendi and we'll get on to what they will think about all of this in a moment but first of all what does KKR see here? Well, this is a company that is obviously very much invested in European telecoms already. We knew KKR was on the acquisition trail. It tried to buy up a Dutch telecom business earlier in the year. That bid failed. And here it sees a company that has been for some time ripe for a split, splitting up the consumer division from the network division. That is nothing new in terms of a strategy that has been put forward to the board. But in the past, this has been very much opposed by Vivendi, who own a 24% stake, the biggest shareholder by some distance here. And even though there is this big premium on the share price in this uh, offer that we're getting today, it's still about half of what Vivendi have paid per share on average over the years for their stake. They are, I'd say they are likely to oppose it, speaking to the analysts today. Or they might come back with some sort of uh, counter bid or offer, something they want to see, probably just more money at this stage. Julia? Yeah, more money at this stage. And what about the government? Because this is not an easy one either. I mean, they're going to be watching and looking very closely at KKR's plans for fixed line networks, for jobs, I think, going forward. Um, Surely you would have to assume that KKR has some assurances that they'll allow them to make changes to have even got to the stage where they're making a bid. Yeah, reading between the lines, that's certainly what we're thinking today, given the Italian government has already come out and said uh, this is positive news for the country. Um, They do have the power to block a takeover of any company they think is strategically important to the nation. And this is certainly uh, one of them. It's interesting, you know, because the prior government to Prime Minister Mario Draghi's were actually quite keen to see some of the fixed uh, line assets and the last mile fiber optic network of Telecom Italia being combined with the state-backed rival open fiber. Now, that didn't seem to be so much on the table under Mario Draghi's um, government, but perhaps it is back on given this. I think the whole uh, deal, particularly when we're looking at the Italian government, will hinge on what they plan to do with the network side of the business. Now, Vivendi are likely to be the problem here, but they have a 24% stake. That's not enough to block it. This deal will need 51% shareholder approval. Julia? Yes. Watch this space. Great job. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, still to come here on First Move. Two alternatives looking to replace the real deal. Startup Next Gen Food says its chicken substitute will allow it to gobble up market share. And Aether Diamonds on creating jewels that capture not just the hearts, but carbon too. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures on the rise amid breaking news on the future of the Fed. President Biden set to nominate current Fed chair Jay Powell for a second term later today. President Biden picking Powell over Fed board governor uh, member, Fed member Lael Brainard. 
President Biden will nominate Brainard for the position of Fed Vice Chair. Apparently, Greg Valliere joins us now. He's Chief Financial Analyst at AGF Securities. Greg, I hope you're stumbling less than I am today because I'm struggling. Take it and tell me what you think of the decision. And we've been a long time waiting for this decision to nominate uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell for a second term. Well, first of all, good to see you. And yeah, what took them so long? My <laughs> Lord, it, it seemingly took months uh, to reach this decision. A- and I think that in waiting this long, the president may have shown that he didn't have the greatest confidence in the world uh, on Jay Powell. Maybe not the greatest confidence in the world with Janet Yellen, who apparently told Biden months ago, just renominate the guy. But at least it's done. I think that everybody in the markets can breathe a sigh of relief and we can move on to the next big story. And that is, when does the Fed start to raise rates? Yeah, I mean, we can and we can't move on in a way, because to your exact point, is Jay Powell in some way weakened as a result? Because he looks like he perhaps doesn't have the confidence of the president. And to your point as well, the Treasury secretary pushing the president to just get this nomination done and to choose Jay Powell. And yet it's taken so much time. What do you think, Greg? Because it matters in terms of the decisions to come. Absolutely, Julian. And and in one word, I would say inflation. I think that uh, there's a fair argument to be made that Jerome Powell was too sanguine during the spring and summer on inflation. He waited too long. He got way, way behind the curve. Inflation now is a real albatross for the Democrats. And I think that Joe Biden probably thought, can I do better? To be blunt, could I get somebody else who might have caught this inflation problem sooner? Yeah. And so now what? Well, again, I, I, I think if economic data continues to look real strong and if the inflation numbers look strong, they're going to have to speed up their tapering. They had indicated they would stop buying assets by midsummer. I think they may have to stop this by mid to late spring and begin raising interest rates by summer. I think that's no longer a long shot. I think there's a good chance we could get three rate hikes if the economic data stays strong, one in uh, June or July, one in September, maybe even one at the end of next year. Wow. I mean, that's uncomfortable for the Biden administration in some regard. There are those that say, look, the inflationary pressures that the administration is facing, that the ordinary American people are facing are painful too. But if you've got rising rates into the midterms here, what's that going to do for the Democrats? Because one of my big questions that I was going to ask you this morning, if we hadn't have had this decision made on on Jay Powell, was why is Joe Biden so unpopular? Well, again, same word, inflation. I think that the Democrats are now really worried about a debacle next fall, losing the House by quite a bit, maybe even losing the Senate as well, because of a perception by the public uh, when they go to buy gasoline or groceries that inflation is out of control. And I think because of this public perception, uh, Biden's numbers have fallen, the Democrats' prospects have weakened, and I think that Many give some of the blame to Jerome Powell, who did not move quickly enough. So we've got a situation now then where perhaps the Federal Reserve, now that we're confirmed with the next chief, or potentially confirmed with the next chief, um, but we, we assume that's a done deal, is going to 
be more targeted about fighting inflation, perhaps to your point, raising rates more quickly. We've also got a Congress or a House in the Congress that has just decided near $2 trillion worth of of more spending. The Senate's going to battle over the size of that, the details of that. Do you think that is inflationary? Do you think perhaps the perception, more importantly, is that that could add to inflation? And is that going to help or hinder ratings as we head into the midterms? Because this administration has done a lot Mm. of spending, trillions of dollars worth of spending already. I think, Julia, there are two audiences. There's the financial markets, which realize there's no playbook for a pandemic that comes once every 100 years. They were in uncharted waters. Inflation picked up. Demand picked up. Ports got clogged. I think the markets appreciate that. But I think for the public, there's a sense that all of this spending uh, has exacerbated the inflation threat. And you've got a very loud member of the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who will continue to make a case that $2 trillion more in spending makes inflation worse. That's a problem. And I think it's a major reason why we're not going to get $2 trillion when they finally get a deal, which, by the way, looks to me as if it's several weeks away. It's well after the first of the year. Yeah, months. Greg Vellier, great to have your insights this morning. Chief okay. U.S. Policy Strategist for AGF Investments there. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open and beginning trade on a holiday shortened week on Wall Street. And we are moving higher. The tech heavy Nasdaq is making another all time high on news out this morning that President Biden has selected Jay Powell to head the Federal Reserve for a second time. And now he just needs to be confirmed by Congress. Okay, let's move on. Singapore-based food startup NextGen Foods wants to replace your chicken with an alternative that it calls Tyndall. It's a plant-based substitute for poultry, and NextGen says it's made from nine natural ingredients. It was recently launched in the United States and over in Europe. It's now in Amsterdam, too. And Tyndall is already on the menu in 150 restaurants across the world, including several with Michelin stars. Joining us now is Andre Menezes. He's the CEO of NextGen Foods. Andre, fantastic to get you on the show and to talk about this. Can you explain the business itself and what gave us this idea? Because what stood out for me was your experience in chicken processing and your other founders family business in meat processing. And yet you both came together and said, look, there's something broken here. We need an alternative. Explain. Good morning, Judith. Uh, Very happy to be here with you. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Both Timo uh, and I, before starting the company in Action Foods, we had experience in the meat industry and with plant-based foods as well. And the very origin of what we do is the idea that we love meat and what it represents as an ingredient, uh, texture, taste, versatility, but we really don't like the way it's produced in a way um, it's extremely resource inefficient. Um, It's a public health um, risk. And uh, we believe that there are better ways and better technologies to deliver what we like, the taste and the textured experience without animal farming. That's how it started. So this is not about you saying, hey, we're going to disrupt other plant-based alternative creators. This is about you saying, look, we really do need to find something alternative to eating poultry. Uh, That's absolutely right. Um, Everything we do in the company is about impact and and sustainability. 
And for us, the impact will only happen uh, by disrupting animal farming and not other plant-based companies. In fact, we uh, appreciate the fact that many plant-based companies are growing and the category is growing as a whole. Consumers are becoming increasingly more open around the world, and that's uh, very positive for the world. Uh, what we will do is convince chicken lovers and chicken eaters uh, that you can have the same, if not even better, experience without animal farming involved. Okay, so explain what Tyndall is made from, because you say, look, it contains no cholesterol, no antibiotics, no hormones, no genetically modified ingredients. So explain what is in it and what lippy is, which is what you describe as the secret ingredient that makes it so chicken-like. Yeah, so Tyndall is made only out of nine ingredients, all of them non-GMO. It's uh, currently produced in Europe, but we are expanding production manufacturing uh, footprint in the US and in Asia as well. The ingredients are very simple. They're basically water, uh, soy, there's a bit of wheat, gluten, wheat starch, um, sunflower oil, natural flavoring, coconut oil, methylcellulose, which is the binder, and oat fiber. So very simple ingredients, all of them non-GMO. Uh, there are absolutely no regulatory restrictions. It can be sold anywhere in the world, and consumers are very happy with its nutritional values, which are extremely similar to chicken for the good things, but obviously no cholesterol since it comes from plants. Um, so- as for lippy, lippy, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go on, get to tell me about Lippy because I think my next question follows from that. Cool. Um, so basically one of the things we did was to understand why chicken was so craveable. And the reason why, one of the reasons it is so craveable is that delicious chicken smell, which actually comes from chicken fat. And we have recreated that chicken fat experiences only using plants. Uh, so basically Lippy is an emotion that we've created that delivers everything you love about the chicken taste, the, te- the, the, the smell, the mouthfeel, um, the, the browning when you cook, and the taste. We have recreated an emotion that together with our fibers deliver everything you love about chicken. That's Lippy. So if it, I guess if it's in a sauce, for example, of some kind, I, I literally won't be able to tell the difference. Yes, um, I mean, in many applications that you have around the world, um, from, you know, fried chicken sandwiches to butter chicken version of, of it made with thing, though, there are many, many applications that you cannot really tell the difference. Um, and sometimes you can even say the difference, but it doesn't mean it's any worse uh, because it's so malleable and it's so uh, versatile. Chefs can do, in fact, more than they would with chicken. And that's um, in some cases, you can tell the difference by that. Okay relative cost compared to buying chicken is this going to be more expensive the same cost less than because as you've said you you know you've got less labor cost it's less harmful for the planet in your mind what's the cost you're absolutely right uh, that's a very important point um and, and there are basically two answers to that question one is a short term and today it's more expensive yeah. but in general uh, served through restaurants consumers are paying around a dollar more proportion uh, when they're buying their uh, fried tindo uh, sandwich in, in restaurants that are serving at you know 10 to 15 dollar dish uh, it's about a dollar more uh, and consumers are absolutely fine with that they're having that great experience that they love in a much more sustainable way that's the the, the situation right now but in the future, uh, as the scale goes up and as the footprint becomes more optimized, it will definitely be uh, cheaper than meat, simply because, as you mentioned, uh, we utilize much less resources and it, it's extremely efficient when compared to animal farming. So if I just did very quickly, like uh, the cost per kilo, 
or the cost per pound on a relative basis versus just it being a dollar more in restaurant. How much more, just even in percentage terms, how much more does it cost today? Do you think it's prohibitive potentially for people or if they saw it in the supermarket, for example, or, or not? It's not a big enough difference for people to worry. Uh, not at all prohibitive. We've been selling without any issues on the cost. And, and in general, the dishes are varying from 10 to 20% more. It depends right. a lot on what the restaurants are effectively charging. Some restaurants actually sell at parity, same price as chicken when they yeah. sell. And some restaurants are charged up to 20% more uh, depending on their costing and you know their consumers. Great. Keep us posted with how the rollout goes and the demand that you see. And I, I love the T-shirt. That certainly is... Um, <laughs> Dressing like you mean it. <laughs> chicken. Not chicken. Um, yes. Thank okay. you very Great much. to have you with us. Thank you very much. The CEO of Next Gen. Thank you. Have a great there. day. Thank you too. And coming up after the break, Sustainable Sparkle. We speak to the founder of a company making diamonds without damaging the planet. Stay with Jacqueline Smith once said, angels are like diamonds. They can't be made. You have to find them. Well, that may be true for angels, but as my next guest shows us, not necessarily now for diamonds. Ether produces them by taking carbon out of the air with extractors that pull it into specialized filters. For every one carat diamond sold, they commit to removing 20 tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere, making them the world's first carbon negative diamonds. Ryan Shearman is co-founder and CEO of Ether Diamonds, and he joins us now. Ryan, I hope I got the science right there. You can explain it, but you're basically saying as a company, um, just being net zero by X date is not enough. You can actually be a net positive for the environment. And it's not just about that. There are social issues with diamonds, too. Well, that's exactly the case. You know, when we look at the landscape of what's happening in the decarbonization space, mitigation is absolutely vital. But at this point, and the data shows, we also need to actively remove carbon from atmosphere if we're going to have any hope of holding to our climate goals. Okay, so talk to me about direct air capture, because I tried to explain some of the science here, but that does seem per carat of diamond to be like a whopping benefit if you're extracting carbon from the atmosphere. This is a lofty goal when we started the company, and it's, it's something we're really proud of, being able to achieve a 20-ton reduction in CO2 from the atmosphere for every carrot that we sell is something that is absolutely paramount to what we're doing. In terms of the direct air capture component, essentially what you said is, is basically true. We're using a specialized filter system that uses amines to chemically bond to the CO2 that is in our air. Uh, once that CO2 is brought through this process, we refine it, we convert it into a hydrocarbon, and that hydrocarbon acts as a, a carrier for those carbon atoms. And from there, we can grow dimes in a laboratory over the process of about a month. And then they have to be cut and polished and beautificated, which I don't think is a word, but hey, we appreciate diamonds. Cost. So important. Well, if I'm cost is important. Yeah, but if I'm looking at this diamond, and you can talk about cost too, but if I'm looking at this diamond, does it look like a traditional mined diamond? And then give me the relative cost. Absolutely. So it really at the fundamental atomic level, what we're producing is exactly the same as what comes from the ground. This is atomic carbon, pure, no impurities, no nitrogen. Uh, mined diamonds can actually have impurities, and that's one of the ways we can tell the difference between a mined diamond and a, and a diamond produced in a laboratory. Uh, from a cost basis, we go through a couple extra steps than maybe your traditional regular lab-grown diamonds, which are produced with fossil carbon. Uh, we are the only 
company in the world that is selling diamonds on the market that are produced with carbon that is sourced from the atmosphere. And because of that, um, we're, we're probably a little bit more expensive than other kind of regular lab-grown diamonds, but we are less expensive than mined diamonds. We find that our consumers are interested in, in potentially paying a little bit of a premium to access a stone that doesn't have all of the negative externalities associated with other diamonds. Okay, how much more than a traditional mined diamond? I mean, obviously, it depends on well, size, color, clarity. Yeah, but, but then the, then the um, lab grown, my apologies. Well, it depends on really what we're talking about. Um, at the moment, we don't sell loose stones. So when you buy an ether diamond, you're actually buying it in a, in a handset piece of artisanal jewelry produced right here in New York City. So it depends on, on what you're looking to buy. Um, it, it would be comparable to a, a mine diamond from uh, one of your local jewelers, perhaps, uh, maybe just slightly underpriced from that. But we are a little bit closer to the price of a mine diamond than that of a traditional regular fossil carbon lab-grown diamond. Hmm. And in terms of clarity, in terms of color, can you play with that based on the science and the technology that you're talking about? Or how does that work? Absolutely. It's a bit of a science and it's a bit of an art. So you, you can refine your recipe. The way I like to, uh, an analogy I make often is it's like nailing shingles to the roof in the middle of a hurricane. So it's controlled chaos. <laughs> but over time, you can refine that recipe and, and you can use that to improve your clarity, to improve your color. Uh, you know, we're really proud that over the course of the last three years, we've really been able to dial that in. Uh, we're selling diamonds that are in the near colorless and colorless range. Um, we've shipped diamonds that are internally flawless, meaning, you know, no visible inclusions w with the eye or with magnification. So as far as anyone's concerned, whether that be a consumer or even a, a professional jeweler, you really can't tell the difference. We are at the top end of that segment, or the top end of that range. Now, Ryan, I know that you used to work at a jeweler because when you talk about the actual diamonds and creating one that's flawless versus talking about the science, your eyes light up and um, mine did too, I have to be honest. You worked for David Yerman, you and your, your co-founder. Um, and that sort of brings me to who the client is. Are the clients that you had there, which is a very well-known jeweler here in New York, um, the kind of people that would buy these diamonds or are you targeting perhaps Gen Z, millennials, perhaps even if they are smaller and, and less relatively expensive diamonds, those that have sustainability front of mind? So it's a bit of both. Hmm. You look at the high end of the market. The luxury segment is one that is wholly underserved from a truly sustainable standpoint, meaning if I'm a luxury consumer and I'm you know, someone who is, has purchased jewelry from the David Yermans of the world, and I want something that is responsibly sourced through and through, there's nothing on the market until now. There was previously nothing on the market to satiate that need. At the same time, we're finding that younger consumers who really at, at the core care so much about where their products come from, uh, they're gravitating towards us in ways that we didn't really expect. We've had consumers come to us and say, I had previously written off diamonds. I said I would never buy one. And now that I know this exists, I have to have one. So we look at this as an opportunity to, to in fact, grow the market a bit. Okay. I saw that you said two-thirds of diamonds sold in 2019 were sold to Gen Z and millennials. So it's quite fascinating. Written diamonds off, but now we're interested. Are you profitable? So that's, that's the beauty of, of diamonds as an outlet for captured carbon. Um, one, of the, one of the primary challenges across the board in the carbon capture and utilization space is whether or not you can develop functional unit economics. And we're really right. proud to say that diamonds are the unlock. We're, we're able to generate a, a ton of revenue for each carrot that we sell. And that's, in fact, what enables us to go and hit these really, uh, you know, lofty goals that we've set for the company and this big commitment of, of removing 20 tons for every carrot that we sell. Yeah. 
if you can make money while you're doing this, then you're a winner. Um, just in America, or is there a global audience for this? So we launched just in America. Um, even if you go to our website right now, uh, it, we're really catering to the to the U.S. market. That said, the inbound interest from international retailers, consumers, and brands has been far exceeding what we expected. So we are in the process of, of really uh, rolling out a, a larger global wholesale play, as well as catering to individual consumers in other countries. We do that on a bit of a one-off basis. So if someone is in Australia or Paris or Canada and they want to find you know, uh, an Ether diamond on their finger someday in the future, uh, they can actually reach out to us and we will handle those one-off. But uh, as of right now, the, the primary market is the US. Aha, but there you go, you see. So for people watching around the world, there are options. Ryan, great to have you with us. Thank you for that, Ryan Shearman there. CEO of Ether Diamonds, great to chat to you and we'll speak soon. Okay, stay with us, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. And one last look at our top story today. Breaking news this morning. It looks like President Biden will select Jay Powell to head the Federal Reserve for a second term. The formal announcement is expected later today. The White House cited Powell's, quote, steady leadership amid the economic turbulence of the pandemic as a reason for the decision. President Biden, in a statement, expressed his full confidence in the Fed chair, too. The nomination still needs to be approved by Congress, but that's not expected to be a problem. Okay, now to El Salvador's plan to build a volcano-powered crypto city. Yes, you heard me right. The city is to be funded by Bitcoin-backed bonds and will feature a central plaza designed to look like a Bitcoin symbol, among other things. Take a listen. It's going to be right there in the Fonseca Gulf, and it's going to include everything. Residential areas, commercial areas, services, museums, entertainment, bars, restaurants. Airport, port, rail, everything devoted to Bitcoin. The only tax that you're going to have in Bitcoin City is the value-added tax, which, you know, normal value-added tax, 10%, which you would pay for, you know, if you buy a Coke, you pay 10%, like, you know. And that value-added tax will be used, half of it, to pay the bonds that we're going to issue to build up the city, so it's going to pay for itself. And the other half will be transferred to the municipality so they clean up their trash, they keep the parks nice, and they keep the city all neat and clean. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, great to have you with us. Not an ordinary president, not an ordinary idea. Uh, how exactly is this going to work? Yeah, this is a bit curious, Julian. I thought about wearing the uh, baseball cap behind me, um, you know, on the hit backwards in honor of uh, El Salvador's president, but decided against it. I think what's going to be very interesting here to see is we know how volatile Bitcoin prices have been. So is it really feasible to have Bitcoin bonds backing this venture I think there are going to be questions about whether or not this really can be financed in that manner or if El Salvador is going to have to go with a more traditional way to potentially uh, build this city. It is interesting that they are doing it near a volcano, which you know gives you the geothermal power to maybe help power the, the Bitcoin mining that will be uh, done in the city. But, you know, it's, it's a very curious project, to put it, uh, put it mildly, Julia. Curious, curious selected word there. Paul, what, 
what has the response been? Because we've talked about El Salvador in the past. They decided to make Bitcoin legal tender. They've had some initial challenges, which you would expect, but some people quite frustrated with the government and the early yeah. stages of I, this. It's definitely too soon to say what the uh, reaction will be to this new uh, urban announcement. But I do think, as you point out, it is noteworthy that there are citizens in El Salvador who have been frustrated by the volatility in Bitcoin. There have been some protests. Having Bitcoin as legal tender might be the wave of the future. But I think right now, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they're so volatile that it makes it difficult to have Bitcoin really be a method of payment that all average people can use because you can wake up one morning and wait a minute, Bitcoin just plunged 10%. You don't see that with the US dollar, the euro, the yen, or any other major currency for that fact, for that matter. Yeah, it needs good planning and it needs advice. I mean, I remember talking to the head of the IMF and, and she said, you just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. It's nascent technology. People need to understand what's going on and they need to do the planning. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses. I believe construction is expected to begin in 2022. Paul, put the hat on, please. I want to see you in the hat. Yeah. If anyone tells you off, you can say I made you do it. There we go. Yeah, there we go. We like the ambition, if nothing else. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Happy Monday. Thank you, Paul. Okay, and finally, on first move. There's something strange in the neighborhood, cinema. Who are you going to call? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? Ghostbusters! Yes, I was a fan. Afterlife, the latest installment of the spooky classic, raked in $44 million on its opening weekend, smashing the maker's expectations of $30 million. Yes, I will be watching that. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Stay safe in the meantime. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow.